0: Good morning, noon or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. This 103rd episode of The Shift was recorded on January 4th, 2022. I'm excited to announce my guest today is California gubernatorial candidate Renette Senham. Renette became well known throughout the state of California as the mayor of Nevada City who stood up to Gavin Newsom concerning lockdown and mandate requirements as part of his campaign against the coronavirus pandemic. After a careful cost-benefit analysis, she developed concerns that such drastic measures would inflict more psychological and economic damage on her community than following the path of confronting the virus with promising early treatment protocols. Ultimately, she resigned from her position upon the realization that her efforts were futile. She has since begun a campaign for governor based in part on allowing greater autonomy for local decision-making, and currently seeks to create a movement from beyond the left-right divide that empowers communities to implement solutions from outside the allowable Overton window of political discussion. These changes are iterated within her Contract for California, which clearly delineates a series of policies designed to address the major issues that plague the state of California today. Within this evolving document, she discusses solutions to the endemic issues of homelessness, education, environmental sustainability, public health, and more, within the overall context of a vision for the seventh generation requiring long-term community benefit rather than short-term gains. Renette's history of community advocacy speaks for itself. She is a founding member of the Alliance for a Post-Petroleum Economy, helped organize a local time bank, organized the Nevada City farmers market, and advocated for local sustainability and against 5G, all on top of her work in local government. To find out more about Renette's perspectives, check out her podcast, Chew on This, her blog, The Foghorn Express, or go to www.electrenette.com to read the Contact for California and donate to the campaign. If you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this episode with all your social media contacts. We rely on listeners like you for distribution within the current social media climate. To find out more about The Shift, sign up to the newsletter or subscribe for feature-length versions of each episode. Go to www.theshiftnow.com. You can also find out more about the podcast by going to Doug McKenty on Facebook, at D McKenty on Twitter, or look up the shift with Doug McKenty on Rockfin and Odyssey. I'm happy to thank California gubernatorial candidate Renette Senum for agreeing to this interview and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey everybody and welcome to this the 103rd episode of the Shift. I'm your host Doug McKenty. Happy today to be joined by Renette Senum. Uh, She was the former uh, councilwoman and mayor of Nevada City, now running for the uh, governor of California. So very excited to have a conversation with her uh, about the uh, state of politics, especially here (laughs) in the state of California, uh, and uh, get the backstory a little bit on her experience as uh, as the mayor of Nevada City, especially as these uh, COVID mandates and the lockdowns were rolled out and uh, what her experience was. In terms of dealing with all of that, because I know uh, that was when you came on the radar for me, Renette was uh, as mayor. You were having some some differing opinions with Governor Newsom about uh, <laughs> how to handle the COVID epidemic, and so <laughs> uh, kind of puts you on the map. I think a lot of people heard about you then. But will you just um, just to get started, and we'll get deeper into that. Uh, just tell us a little bit about your history, uh, how you got started into politics, um, your history, especially as a community organizer, and maybe some of the uh, some of the highlights of the campaign, some of the issues that are most important to you.
1: Well, uh, just to let you know, I'm, I'm in a little tiny town here in Northern California called Nevada City. It's in the Sierra foothills. Um, we're just northwest of Sacramento, uh, just under the, the uh, 3,000 foot level. We got a little bit of snow right now. And I was raised in this county since I was four years old. Um, and it was in 2004 that I really got involved in community activism. I was just basically uh, originally kind of looking at America's oil addiction, realizing it was a bit of a of a of a weak link uh, in in our economy and and so on and the financial system and everything. And so I originally. Um, had a, a, a conference regarding uh, uh you know peak oil, it was called at the time, and I started uh, with other community members, an organization called Apple Alliance for a Post-Petroleum Local Economy. And basically what that was, we we're just really trying to teach the community how to be more resilient and sustainable. And I don't mean uh, Agenda 21 United Nations version, I mean mm-hmm. the mom and pop small on the ground, decentralized version. And, uh, and then I was very involved in going to the city council meetings a lot and trying to trying to get them to approve certain projects here and there. Then ultimately, I realized as I was watching these council meetings that there was never really a vision for the city. They were just more reactive than proactive. And I decided I'm going to run for city council. So I ran in 2008, and I got the most votes uh, in in the 150-year history of Nevada City, which was, uh, it was 82 or 84% of the votes. And I became uh, vice mayor the first year and mayor the second year. And that first four years from 2008 and 12 were phenomenal, Um, very proactive. I put together a beautiful sustainability team. We put together a 20-year sustainable vision that was codified by the city council. And we started working on uh, getting uh, um, solar panels in all the municipally-owned buildings. And I started the first organic farmer's market in Nevada County and started uh, Sierra Roots, a, a homeless advocacy organization that um, and I championed the uh, first uh, uh, extreme weather shelter for the homeless. Um, I organized community members, about 100 of them, uh, in two days to build a fleet of micro houses on wheels for the homeless that I wheeled out over a course of three years to where the homeless were. Um, and just, you know, and just uh, also built a parklet to really do a, a, a pilot program for bringing back our town square. Our town square in Nevada City, like most cities and towns around America, was destroyed when a highway came through the heart of the town and destroyed the town square so we were mm. we were working on that and so i was very very involved in well basically my, my vantage point was this is i wanted to make a better world and how does one person do that right and i realized that if i want to make the world better i just need to start in my own community so my objective was to uh, to to create Nevada city in such a way that people would come into this town and go oh this is what community is like oh this is a sense of place and and inspire them into action and to bring and to bring that home to their community. So by the time I was done in, in, in 2012, I thought it was finished and I sent the city off in a good direction. And, and then over the course of four years, I was dismayed by the petty, I'd say petty personal politics, a lot of personal politics going on that was not helping the community. And um, so I jumped in the ring again and I ran in 2016 and I was once again became vice mayor and mayor again. Uh, like 10 years later, since I was originally mayor. And that was from 2016 and 20. And uh, and it was interesting, Doug, because I'd seen a lot of changes in politics. And what had happened in that four-year gap of when I was not on the council was that there's a difference between the first four years of being really proactive and going out there and setting our own pace and our own vision. And then the next round, four years later, was very, um, really being on the defense, right? The homeless population had risen significantly. We are now extreme fire danger. We we, we are only a, a bird's, you know, a stone's throw from from paradise where we saw a catastrophic fire there. And we're in the same kind of terrain. So that also then created a domino effect of people having to move, uh, policy cancellations happening, or the rise in homeowners insurance getting so high that people couldn't afford to pay the rent any longer. Um, and then, of course, we're dealing with pg e Pacific Gas and Electric. They had all these massive what they call PSPS events where they turn off the electricity for sometimes not hours, but days and days on end. So businesses were being disrupted and Closing was just crushing them economically. Um, and so it was really interesting to see how much the world had changed in four years. And so um, uh, I still stayed on the defense and kept fighting a good fight. And I was pushing, pushing back against a lot of encroachment, I would call it. Uh, Verizon was trying to come in here and put big, huge towers that was unnecessary. And of course, Pacific Gas and Electric just shutting off power for days on end, not not really considering the ramifications. And, and so... I was doing a lot of testifying uh, down in Sacramento against 5G and going to the California Public Utility Commission and testifying against PGD and the damage they're doing to our community and our economy. And um, and I was not very impressed with most of our elected officials you know, throughout the county, the city, or the state. I think that most of them at that time I was recognizing did not have much of a backbone and were afraid to actually speak up against um, you know, big corporations. And in fact, when I would, they, I would usually get pummeled by my own peers. And then I was mayor uh, beginning of 2020 when coronavirus was hitting and I was keeping an eye on it early on in January and um, it caught my attention. I you know I was aware of SARS and MERS and H1N1, but I was never ever concerned about it. But it was the Chinese government's reaction that was really concerning. He's like, wow, this is really uh, extreme. And I started saying to the city and the county officials like hey have you heard of this thing called r- coronavirus and looks like it's on its way and You know, if it's as virulent as they're saying it is and the predictive models were saying it was going to double every four to five point six days, that meant that, you know, by the end of April, the whole planet was going to be consumed. Right. And that was just predictive models. That's all we had. But I said to all our officials around here, I said, you know if it's as, as virulent as they said, we should really be on our game because more than likely it's swimming around this community right now and we just don't know it. Mm-hmm. And they were really slow. I was surprised by how slow they were to react. And then finally, um, and by that time, my partner and I were self quarantining and I bought my N95 masks and, and I was not going to a big, uh, a lot of, um, public events. So I was still campaigning. I just wasn't doing the public events and, um, and just trying to, you know, not, to reduce our own personal risk. And then it was in March actually that I did declare a state of emergency as mayor. I thought that we needed to be as cautious and as conservative as possible until we had more real data more information, more information. And, and then uh, finally, uh, Newsom gave his stay and stay at home orders, which I thought, okay, two weeks, that's actually good. Let's just kind of make sure the hospitals are ready. Make sure that we're ready. People have time to, you know, uh, recalibrate. And, and then of course, um, all of our all of our meetings, city council meetings, county meetings, went to uh, Zoom calls, and so now I was on regular Friday afternoon Zoom calls with county officials, the health department, city managers, and mayors. And at first, it was copacetic. I, you know, we're just all trying to stay on message and get the latest information. And I was saying, okay, this is great. You know, until we get until we get some real real data, this is the best we can do. And and once we get that data, we'll adjust ourselves accordingly. And then the data started to come in, Doug. And it was good news. It was actually, I was saying on my Facebook feeds, hey, guys, we've got good news. We don't need to be so worried. It's not as bad as we thought it was going to be. We, right. we, we, we have this under control. And it was really fascinating because the first time people came out of the first lockdown, and I always think it's fascinating language, the lockdown, using this kind of prison terminology, um, I was actually down in one of our downtown cafes outdoors and I was seeing a lot of people kind of walking out for the first time. And they were there with their teenage, you know, or their children or their their, their spouses. And I was looking at their faces and I was really shocked. I was like, they had this look in their face. It reminds me of something, and I couldn't figure out what it was at first. And then I realized, oh my gosh, the look in their face. It reminds me when I went to Hurricane Katrina after it first happened. People had this this you know, like this PTSD, right? This kind of um, shell shock look. And and I'm looking at everybody going, wow, they, they have this shell shock look. And I'm, and I'm like, but they're in the safety of their own homes. So where did the trauma come from, right? And then that's when I realized like, oh, wow, what I think has been happening is that people have been mm-hmm. on the screens left and right and they've been getting traumatized by the news by the fear what i call fear porn and um and, and i realized that we'd been traumatized uh, and it was we had pretty much undergone some massive psychological um operation whether it's intended or unintended i don't know but it was a, a psychological exposure that did not bode well and so at that point in time I really became even more concerned because I'm on the Zoom calls with the county and city officials, and I began to see that um, they're not pivoting according to the information. So I start asking deeper questions like, "Hey, so what are we what are we measuring here? Let's like, what's the goalpost because it keeps changing, and um, what's the metrics? What are we what are we measuring? And finally, I had somebody by the name of Dr. Roger Hicks, who I considered a dear friend over the years. Uh, I've lost complete respect for him, but he said to me, "Well, Renette, until we have zero cases." And I said zero cases. I'm right. I mean, like, is that even possible? And and then another doctor butted in, who I n- have never heard of before. Sense he, you know, he uh, chimed, in, chimed in and he said, Renette, Nevada County has very, very low vaccination. Uh, uh, no, no, very, very low herd immunity. And until that gets back up, you can just expect more of the same." So I said, "Well, if and what he was referring to is that Nevada County at that time had the lowest vaccination rate in the state of California, if not the nation." And um, we we're very health oriented, you know, farmers markets, eating healthy, alternative, you know, medical practitioners and so on. This is very much a part of our lives. Uh, we, we took uh, health seriously. And, and we believed in, you know, acquired herd immunity. And so I said, well, if you're talking herd immunity, you must be talking about acquired herd immunity. And if that's the case, we should be getting out or in spring, we should go out and get the vitamin D if you want to, we should distribute the vitamin C and D packets and, and, uh, you know, the zinc tablets and, and really encourage people to go out and start growing their own food, get their hands in the soil, you know, and their basic answer was no. And they wouldn't say exactly what it was, but it was as much what they were not saying as it was what they were saying. And what they were not saying was that basically they wanted everyone to get jabbed and get rid of that that, um, that low herd immunity, which is a low jab rate. So um, at that point in time, I became very, very concerned because I realized there was an ulterior motive going on. And I was trying to let people know. I was trying to let my community know, like, look at what they're telling you publicly, what they're putting on the... the um, the, the COVID dashboard, uh whether press releases, what's online on the, the official county website, what that is not the conversation we're having behind the scenes. they're not, they're telling us two different stories because they're telling us personally as elected officials, masks don't work. And then publicly they're saying you got to put your mask on. And so and there's this this to me was mass confusion uh also by design, because when you confuse people over and over again in the end, it's much easier to actually uh to to program them, to get them to think a certain way and keep them in fear and get them to do what you want. So I started seeing these really scary patterns going on. And and when I would speak up during the Zoom calls, I would be either muted, I would be ignored, or be told by our county CEO, and people do forget our counties are, are corporations. The bottom line is making money, just to right. let you know. And the county CEO by Alison Lehman, another woman that I used to really respect, who I've lost all my respect for, um, would mute me, silence me, or say, Renette, why don't we wait to the end of the meeting um, when everyone gets off the Zoom call, we can go into your blades of grass. Uh, they didn't want me to rock the boat. They didn't want anyone to crush the narrative, and that became very apparent, and I was livid. So now we are in June and I have won my third election. I, I've won my third term uh, in, in February. And so I'm going to be sticking around for another four years, it looks like. And what happens is that as um, June comes and we have a mandate, just county by county. Right. It's, it's, it's all uh, it's all predicated on the county's decision. And and interestingly enough, we did see that those who did mandate masks actually had the same, if not more death rate. Uh, than those who did not have masks. Interestingly, they have a mask mandate. Um, and this was pointed out by Placer County's uh, Supervisor Kirk Euler. He did a really good job of analysis on the data in their county and other counties. Well, as soon as he, he did a live stream on that, within two days, Newsom did a whole statewide mandate. So you can no longer compare county from county, right? The unmasked mandates to the mask mandate counties. And, um, and when that happened, I was like, wow, he made this executive order to, to do this. And I thought that's fascinating. Did not realize the governor had unilateral power to make some kind of law like that. Right. So, um, I went down to our police chief, Chad Ellis. I said, Chad, I said, I want to talk to you about this mask mandate. I said, um. I said, are you going to enforce this? And he said, well, I don't know how. There's no penal code. We can't enforce something unless there's a penal code. The code is pretty simple. And he says, and on top of that, he goes, it doesn't look very constitutional to me. I said, yeah, it doesn't look too constitutional to me either. So I um, did the only thing I could, could do, and I've done it before in the past, and I, I have garnered a lot of attention and sometimes the wrath of God, but I'm willing to take it. And I went on my Facebook page and made a bold statement, which was basically, as you go about your day, just know that uh you know governor newsom is not king uh this is a mandate not a law there's a big difference um a mandate is somebody says hey go do this and they cross their fingers and hope you you go do it but there's there's no teeth behind it and so just you know go about and join your day well of course all hell broke out and that's when you probably heard about me so right. <laughs> um you know at the la times sf gate sacbee they're like oh this woman's saying nobody should wear a mask i'm like no that's not what i was saying What I was saying is that your governor is overreaching his power of authority. He is not king. He does not have the authority. That's not how the legislative process works. Mm -hmm. There is a long, laborious process to lawmaking, and this is not it. And it is during a time of emergency, a state of emergency, that is when you must be most fastidious and make sure that you're still abiding by the law, because it's during a time of emergency. A state of emergency that things could get really slippery, and uh, so that's what I was calling out. Um, And so then, at that point in time, uh, July arrives, and it's July eighth, and I'm ready to step down as mayor and and take my oath as um, city council member for the uh, you know third term for the next four years. And surprisingly, to uh, the community and to the city and and my city council members, I I let them know I was resigning. And as I was resigning them, I gave them a little bit of a lecture, which made me even more unpopular. And I said to them. And this was back in December 2020, right? So people are still in a sh- in a state of shock for the most part. But by that time, I I I'd already been doing a lot of dil- due diligence and researching, and I was very confident. And I said um, to let you know, there is a gentleman by the name of Dr. Leonard Hardell, and he's known for uh, years of, of of gathering empirical evidence and studies. And he's the one who convinced the World Health Organization that Agent Orange was a a cancer-causing agent. And once he went around and they were telling all the heads of these different chemical companies to stop spraying this, those who did not abide by that, uh, they hauled off to, you know, to the world courts uh, for crimes against humanity. And so I told my city council members, and I was saying it to the, the county officials too, that in order to, uh, to uh, determine whether or not a person is committing a crime against uh, humanity, you need to ask one question and one question only. And that is, what did you know by when? What did you know by when? And I said, all of you have enough information, like I have information, to know that you're committing crimes against humanity. This is unnecessary. It's a a biological experiment. You cannot force this. It's against the Nuremberg Code. And I said, to let you know, we're gonna come back and we're gonna hold Mm -hmm. your feet to the fire to the highest extent of the law. Mm -hmm. And then I stepped down. And I said, I'm stepping down to step up. Did not know exactly what that meant beyond at that point in time, there was definitely a big void in information. And that's what I was seeing is I kept looking around the state of California saying, where are all the elected officials? Where, where are all the doctors and nurses? And why aren't they speaking up? What's going on? And and there was just this, this, this vacuum of, of, of information for people to make informed consent, right? Informed decisions. So I thought, okay, the best thing I can do at this point in time is get off the city council. Because if I were to be on the city council, and start doing interviews, which I began to do. My poor city staff would, would receive the wrath of God from the people who loved me and the people who hated me. And and, and, and we're tiny, tiny little cities. So uh, the staff was on my side. The city council was not. Um, but the, the city staff, ninety nine point nine percent, were like, we were with you. We agree with you. But they still had to deal with all of the outrage and the the emails and the phone calls. And it was just too much for their plate. So I thought, I've got to remove them from the crossfire. So I stepped off. I started a, a YouTube channel called Renette Sentem's Chew on This. Mm-hmm. And uh, and as soon as I did an interview with Sherry Tempany, they went viral, got millions of views. Uh, they removed me and removed my channel. And so I moved most of the content, not all. I lost some, to bit shoot. And, and I was doing uh, regular interviews. And now I'm not so much simply because there are so many people right doing interviews. I'm like, okay, great, we got that covered. I don't need to cover that base anymore. But what happened was because I was doing these, um, I stepped down because I was doing the interviews. Dell Big Trees, the high wire, interviewed me, and as one of the few elected officials calling out Newsom, and of course I got a lot of people saying you should run for governor. And I was absolutely not; I have no interest. And then ultimately, <laughs> I had two individuals who were my chief of staff. Um, we talked for two months, and I finally said to them, I said, "Look if you want me to run for governor." The only way that I would do that is if we do something extraordinary. I said, if you want me to do something more of the same, I'm not interested. Um, I believe in the seventh generation principle. uh, And that is, you know, every decision you make today should serve seven generations from now. And that, uh, that comes from the six nations of the Iroquois Confederacy. These are the indigenous people who inspired our constitution. And finally, Congress in 1988 actually gave them full recognition for this. But. Uh, our forefathers forgot the seven generation principle, which should have been a part of the constitution, right? So our leaders can make decisions based upon the seven generation principle. That would have kept that that contract, the, uh, not contract, but the uh, constitution intact. Mm-hmm. And so I said, so if we can make this, this campaign based upon the seven generation principle, I love that. I said, also, I'm not running with any party affiliation whatsoever because it is absolutely impossible to serve a party and serve the people at the same time. When you are, when you are, serving a party, you are serving big money. And until that changes, we've got to start voting for California. And so they said, okay, so this was a year ago, we began, um, writing a contract with Californians. What you see online is the first iteration There's actually a second one coming with even better changes. Um, and we can get into what some of those are, but this is a seven point, um, and is a seven-point um, blueprint for California, and it was inspired by two different individuals. Interestingly enough, Newt Gingrich, who originally wrote the um, contract with Americans, and then later on Ice Cube, the rapper, wrote a contract with Black Americans. And so we read both, uh, we took bits and pieces of them, and got inspired by them. And then we also created our own version for California, respectfully. And uh, and so that is our blueprint. And we have some other things to add to. They're just beautiful really good and um and and the reason why we want to do this too is i i don't like to pull a pelosi what that is is that i don't want people to vote for me and then find out you know what kind of candidate i really am uh and like pelosi you know is always saying you got to vote for this bill in order to find out what's what's in the bill i'm like we're not doing that we want you to know exactly what you're voting for we want you to know what you're getting most candidates i would say 95% don't want to put out a blueprint, don't want to put out anything uh, beyond platitudes because they don't want the, their constituents to hold their feet to the fire saying, hey, you promised this in detail and yet you're doing this. Um, and so we also can talk about this later, but we do have a way to, to hold our elected officials feet to the fire and, and, and actually have a measurement for them that we don't have right now. So uh, I am running for California governor. Um, I have had people ask "Well, who do you think your biggest competitor is besides Newsom? Um, and I've said to people, I said, my, I don't feel like I have any, when I really look at what the other candidates have, I don't feel like any of them have what we have. They don't have the spirit of what we have. We have, they don't have the blueprint of what we have. They don't have the vision of what we have. Um, and this is really a child centric. This is about bodily autonomy, medical freedom parents having a say over their children's bodies and their education, and, and that the government has no right in our in our bodily decisions. And um, and what we've also done is we've taken, uh, we've looked at the greatest risks throughout the state of California, and we've done the Aikido move where we've turned them into our biggest opportunities, like rebuilding our topsoil, rebuilding our pollinator population, expanding our legacy farms, ensuring them for generations, um, you know, uh, reducing our monocrops, which are very dangerous. And so we've done that. And, you know, most candidates have not. So when, I, when this person asked, like, who's your biggest challenger in 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 this campaign, it's only five months away. You know, the, the primary in California. I said, it's not a candidate who's my my biggest foe. I said, it's censorship. I said, because even our own local radio station that I was a broadcaster for 10 years, won't even mention that I'm running for governor. They closed down their doors and, and changed policies and and became like a Bolshevik style radio station. So they won't even mention I'm running for governor. I'm like, this is my hometown. They don't don't think it's big enough news. And, and that as a former broadcaster, they should even mention it. So the biggest challenge we're facing is the, um, is the censorship by far. And, and that's where I, I reach out to people like you. And I reach out to your listeners and viewers and saying, look at folks, we need you to be the messenger. Whether you're in California or outside of California, you need to let everyone in California know that I'm running. Have them go to electrenet.com, see what we're doing, and um, and also be that messenger because we have got to um, circumvent the censorship, which is really unhinged. Um, you and I are even facing it trying to get the Zoom call set up today, <laughs> um, and so that's that's the biggest thing. So we need we need messengers everywhere. People outside of California have to understand we don't want California to fall. If California falls. That means it's only amount of time that the other states throughout the U.S. are going to fall as well. We are a firewall. We are extraordinarily important. We are the fifth largest economy in the world, you know, the largest economy in the United States of all the states. And you can't, we can't fall. And so people have got to understand that you can't suddenly go, oh, that's liberal California, let them fall. We're your firewall. So we're telling people around the United States to also a dollar, three dollars, five dollars. We don't care. The smaller donations are actually a stronger statement because if we have. Millions of people giving one, two, five dollars. That's a people. That's a you know a mandate by the people, and that's really important. And that's what this whole entire campaign is about. It's not about big money. The parties aren't backing us up, and, and this is this is a mandate by the people. So we want people around the country, around the world, to notify other Californians that I'm even running.
0: Yeah, how frustrating is it that you can't uh, even get the word out, even in your own local hometown? Now, I want to get a little bit deeper into this idea of running. Um, sort of, uh, uh a politically or outside of any political party. Did you identify as Democrat previously when you started running, when you were running well, for Nevada? City? No, actually,
1: you know, there's, there's, uh, if you Google me, you say, Oh, we you know, the most like progressive Democrat or she's a, uh, mm-hmm. And these are actually titles and, and headlines that I would never have supported. I'm like, no, um, uh, actually when I ran for city council, it's, it's, there's no, no partisan whatsoever. You're just running. There's no party involved whatsoever. Um, and so I have in the past voted Democrat, but I have to tell you, it was when Obama got elected the first time that I was like, you know, and I voted for Obama. Right. But then when I started seeing his Tuesday kill list and his droning and killing people and his wars and his being a warmonger, I was like, wait a second, this is not what the Democrats are supposed to be about. So, it was actually when Obama got elected the first time that that they completely lost me, and I have to say, um, I've been I've been also really more like libertarian because the other thing that's very different about me than the, than the most progressives or Democrats. So I think this is changing actually. Is that I've always been pro uh, Second Amendment, and that was highly contentious and controversial among my my peers because they're talking about the school shootings and this and that and so on. I'm like, look, I understand. But I think you have to really look under the veil of the school shootings, look at the politics behind it all. And I said, and I've traveled a lot around the world and I've been in nations during civil war and after civil war, and it's really, really ugly when the people have no way to defend themselves against their own tyrannical government. I was, I was in South Africa in 86, 87 during the height of apartheid. I hitchhiked around that country as a, a blonde chick all alone. I saw what was going on. I was in um, Rwanda and Uganda during the war and after the civil wars. And it, when when the bullet holes were still fresh in the buildings, and the tanks were still, you know, um, on the side of the road. And, and to see what happened to these people, because they could not defend themselves, it, it, it's a nightmare. It's catastrophic. It's just, it's a nightmare. I won't go into details. So I always understood that governments can go rogue. And generally, it's only a matter of time. And now, and although I do know why many people could not understand um, Americans' obsession around guns, I think most of the world right now, from what I've been being told by people, are like, oh my gosh, we now understand why you have guns. Don't let them go.
0: Right. <laughs> Once right? we're seeing, it's, it's we're seeing what's happening big... in Australia.
1: And my brother, by the way, my, my brother escaped. And I do mean escaped Australia about three and a half months ago.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: He had to leave behind his whole world, his job, his his home, his 11-month-old puppy, his cat, two young daughters with his ex-wife. He's, we're trying to, you know, we'd love to get them over here. Don't know if we ever will be able to. It's really upsetting. He can't go back. They'll certainly arrest him. He won't. He never wore a mask the whole entire time, did not abide by the lockdowns then. Now they're stricter than ever. And he was home. He was basically in house arrest for 180 days nobody coming over it was horrific um because you know single guy see his daughters every now and then but it was really just by himself and he's like i can't do this and, and i'm gonna speak up they're gonna throw me in the gulag if i return so um and he says the only reason why it's happening in australia is they cannot defend themselves
0: uh-huh. well um So I wanted to while I have you here, I wanted to I wanted to get into this concept of local or community control, because I find that you're in a unique position as having been the mayor of a a city here in California and involved in local politics. And what I'm seeing and I'm not that far from you, actually, I'm in Mendocino County, just uh, closer to the coast. Um, And. It's frustrating because, to me, what I'm seeing here, and I, and I want to see if you have the same experience, is that many of the local politicians, while they pretend like they have some decision-making, you know, there's a decision-making process going on, really what they have to do, especially the health officials, is follow the guidelines from the state, who typically have to follow the guidelines from the, from the federal government. So there's not really a lot of local control going on i mean we can have these vibrant debates amongst our communities but ultimately it comes down to do you want to do what they tell you you know which most people end up kind of having to go with especially if their jobs depend on it or do you want to sort of fight the power and then nothing actually gets accomplished so you know what do you think about this this kind of power struggle and then And then how do we, how do we get over that? Can we, can we bring more autonomy into the local governments here in California?
1: Well, it's interesting you do bring that up because, um, when I got elected, it was a real rude awakening where, you know, you're going out there and you're trying to get the votes, and you're listening to everyone. I went to 1400 doors, you know, doorsteps and knocked on doors and talk to people and really got the pulse, which I love doing. I'm really good at that. I love getting the pulse and figuring out, okay, this is where you want to go. My job as an elected official is to clear the path, to make it easier for you to get from point A to point B. And that's what I think of leadership in a nutshell, right? And um, and so I get elected. And as soon as you get elected, you take an oath and you take an oath, you know, to the U.S. Constitution and the California Constitution. But really what's happening is you're taking an oath to the state of California. Mm-hmm. And once you're elected, it's really like we got to do everything the state says. Period. If you try to go out there and do something the state doesn't like, city hall and your your peers will fight you tooth and nail. And so it's really just dis- dece- deceitful in that you know you're sitting there going and getting your 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 votes from your constituents. But once you're in there, the city doesn't want you to really listen to the constituents. In fact, I'm really good and have always been very good at at uh, engaging the public and. I mean, through public workshops and and letting them know, you know, certain agenda items are going to be up and educating them about it, so they know the pros and the cons and getting them to show up and promoting through social media. Like, if you want to show up on this? This is really important. And, and alerting people to things they may not have seen otherwise in, in the agenda package. And um, it always made City Hall really angry because, like, we don't want their interference. We don't want their opinion. All you're doing, Renette, is you're slowing down our job and making it more difficult. And I'm like, but we're the state. We're, you know, I mean, we're the city. We're elected officials. It's our job to actually represent them. And and the the city staff, city managers, and actually even um, the city, uh, you know, council members, hated that i could do that and they were always mystified how i could pack the chambers i mean when i would call upon this the community they would show up it'd be standing room only and it got so bad that they started calling them the oh it's the cult of Renette." oh it's the church of (laughs) brunette (laughs) and i would say no actually what it is is that the community knows I listen to them and they see the work they do, that I'm doing. I'm a hands-on person. I'm in the trenches. I make things happen. And and, the, and when I call upon them saying, hey, now I need you. I need your backup. Please come to the chambers at the city council meeting or workshop. They would show up in droves because because I, I was calling upon them. And I would only call upon the public when I really needed them. And it mystified all the city council members. But I'm like, look, if you guys would actually listen to, to your constituents – And do what they they said when you would call upon them they would actually show up too but they don't because you're not doing anything for them and so it's it's a big it's a big joke on on citizens and when once your elected officials get your candidates get elected they instantaneously begin to um stop serving the constituents and start serving the state or the federals or feds or whatever. And 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 even if you are a, a representative who really does try to serve the people, your your peers will will keep hitting you over the head like whack-a-mole to shut you down because you're making them look bad. And so I have said for years that for the most part, um, politics are a race to the bottom. And yeah. and if, you know, if you really do stand up and stand out and, and and bring together, you know, bring good policy to the table or good projects and programs like I did my first four years, I mean, I was like a whirlwind. I was a whirlwind. And then when I came back the next round, there was this recalcitrant wall that the better the idea or project that I brought to the table, the faster and harder it would be um, voted down. Uh, in spite of some of these pro- programs not even costing the city or the county or the state any money. The great programs dealing with, you know, cleaning out a watershed and reducing our fire danger and reducing our recidivism rate in our jail and and, and teaching people who are homeless, you know, giving them housing while training them around, let's say, watershed and forest management. You know, it was, it was a multi, multi-beneficial multi program. And, and the more that it shined, the more the county and the cities would go out of the way to destroy it. And it was just, it was surreal. Right. It was surreal, and and that's what we're up against. And and I realized by my third term that I had won. I realized that all the good stuff I could do that I was going to continue doing was probably going to be impossible because no matter what I did, they're going to vote it down. And I realized there's so many incoming missiles into this community. We're talking again like pg e blackouts and the homelessness and the fire danger, and and then of course COVID. Um, it's like I couldn't even I couldn't even operate my own little sandbox any longer. It's like I had to, I had to like step out of my sandbox and go find a bigger sandbox yeah. and, and deal and protect this community and help this community at a different level. And that's another reason why I decided to run for governor. And I know it's a big thing and I'm in a tank of sharks, but also we're we're we we've created this this campaign in such a way that um whether I win or not, our objective is to change the face of California through the campaign itself, and that is to educate people and inform them around that seven-generation principle and what they can do, whether or not their, their government's giving them permission, and they can measure their governor, government's uh, representative's performance. Uh, through a different measurement, through a different metrics that I'm going to really push for afterwards, because we have no way to really measure our elected officials and hold their feet to the fire and hold them to a, tr- a type of standard. And I'm tired of that. That's part of the problem. If you want to change the world, you change what you're measuring.
0: <laughs> right. Very good point. I, I I keep wanting to, I want to dive deeper into this recalcitrant wall idea that you brought up because, you know, people have a feeling I mean, it actually gets called conspiracy theory. Oh, you think that everybody is conspiring to impose, you know, the lockdowns or impose vaccine mandates or whatever it is. and And yet, um, all of the local officials, it's it's this wall. It's what it is is this brick wall. that's coming down from above, and nobody wants to rock the boat. And it's so bizarre to me. i mean, i've I've just had enough experience with local politics here in my own county that it's like, that it's like that brick wall just like you're talking about i mean how do you tear down that wall it gets to the point where as you've described now your campaign is 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 uh is enduring overt censorship like if you try to break down the wall they they just won't let you talk i mean and then as you described um previously as well You know, if you had local projects that you really that would have been good for your local community, you knew they were going to get voted down because it wasn't part of the process that everybody, you know, every I feel like it's just this bureaucracy where everybody's just pushing papers and it's really preventing political activism from getting the job done from from the bottom up, you know.
1: Well, you're 100 percent and it's not conspiracy. It's 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 uh, it's called big money. Yeah. Yeah. And as soon as big money really started to come in, uh, into, into elections, that's when the wall was built. And so one of the things we're also doing on this campaign, we have a very, very different gubernatorial campaign, than anything I've seen. So one of the things that we're doing also is we're challenging people saying, look at if you, cause we are in such a deep hole. Right. We are we are on the precipice. We're going over. No, I don't need to need to explain this to anybody. But um, if we think that one person, a governor, is going to fix everything, that's delusional. Now, a a governor can stop stupid bills in their desk. They can veto it. They can make sure make sure the bills passing are actually constitutional. He can uh, he or she is a governor, which is amazing. California's never had a female governor, as a matter of fact. Mm -hmm for being so cool and progressive. Um, but you know, a governor can also uh, make sure that there's certain policies put into place, right? They can make sure that those appointees, like let's say for, for instance, the California Public Utility Commission would support more decentralization of the energy grid. Like right now we have people out of power for two weeks, three weeks easily. Why? Because of this gigantic monopoly that's been taking all the money, and instead of investing it into infrastructure, they're, in, they're they're giving it to shareholders on Wall Street. And so we're suffering the consequences of this. So that's one thing that, gov- these are some of the things the governor can do. But the truth of the matter is, we're challenging people saying, look at what we need to do is that we need to actually have people run at every single level. I don't care the party affiliation. It's gotta be the school board level, the city, the county, the state, federal, so on, and, Run with the seventh generation principle as the platform, as the foundation of your 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 campaign, and and then that way people can also hold your feet to the fire, saying, "Really, is that decision is that best for for the seventh generation?" Explain to me how how you made that decision. Right? It's a standard. We're creating another standard, and there's another one I want to talk to uh, talk about shortly. But so so we have to we have to we have to swamp the system. We have to we have to create a tidal wave, and then that way too. Because even though the elections can be rigged or not, the objective is to get people really engaged, start thinking about the seven generation principle, run at every single level, swamp the system. They can't control that many elections. So you're going to start changing the culture and the zeitgeist of California. And then the other important component, too, is like, look, we know everybody doesn't want to run for an elected position or an appointed position, and we don't have that many positions anyway. But can you? As an individual, whether you're a police officer, a teacher, you know, a a nurse, uh, a garbage man, you know, um, you know, a dog catcher, can you start leading and thinking and making decisions based upon that seven generation principle? And so I had people ask, you know, well, what does that, what do you mean? And what does that look like? I'm like, well, I'll I'll give you some examples. I said, if you're a farmer and you have your crop and some weeds in a road and you want to get rid of the weeds, do you spray with Roundup or do you spray with white vinegar? which better serves a seven generation? Um, another example, let's say you have some some food you want to take to go. Do you put it into a one-time plastic throwaway container or do you put it into a stainless steel or a glass container? Which better serves a seven generation? Now, I know people have said, well, that seems really insignificant. I'm like, nah, this is the point you're missing. Your leaders have led you to believe that your, your future, your destiny The trajectory of our world is predicated upon their decision-making, their policies, and our legislation. What they don't want you to know is that we are much more powerful than than they let us believe or we let ourselves believe. The average person has 12 to 60, more like 60,000 thoughts a day, and many of those thoughts are connected to actions. And I know personally from my own adventures and what I've done in the past that getting from point. A to a big leap of point B is not one gigantic decision. It's a series of tiny, tiny, tiny decisions that gets you to wherever you go. So if we can change the trajectory where we're going this way, but we start making decisions about that seven generation, well, guess what? Over time, over time, we're going to be way over here in the future rather than over here. Mm-hmm. And we're going to be guaranteeing that the, you know, seven generations from now, our children's children's children actually have a beautiful bountiful future and i ha- actually hope better than what we are experiencing right now because it's not that great um so that's what we can do through our tiny little decisions throughout the day and this is the other thing i talk about one of the reasons why we like i'm I, i'm an environmentalist um, now do i believe in the um the carbon programs and 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 and, and, and I'll, no i don't i believe in grassroots on the ground activism making sure we have clean soil clean water clean air Uh, i do not believe in in um a centralized global environmental movement um like the united nations is trying to push down our throat i'm totally against that and the green new deal is nothing green about it. it is a boondoggle if i've ever seen one so please any environmentalists out there you want to give me a call i'll tell you point by point why it's a big boondoggle and will not serve us whatsoever in the end but um so I'm a big environmentalist, but I've always been saying for a long time, like, look at you guys. If we, as a culture, could just always try to make decisions that serves a seven generation, what that does is that removes the need for environmental regulation. That is uh, that is over over overbearing. That is beyond the reach of what government should be doing that is punitive that is costly that does not really in the end serve the environment it seems to serve somebody's deep pockets over and over again mm-hmm. but if we can hold a standard as society where we actually care for the environment in such a way to ensure its existence from seven gen- seven generations from now what it does is it removes the need for governmental red tape in the first place which is just killing us in so many ways And it's not serving the environment. We've been backsliding the whole entire time. We have more regulations now than ever, and yet we're backsliding.
0: you are listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKenty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to The Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com/store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind make the shift on this program i always want to talk about decentralizing power and then especially getting the money the big money out of it just like you're talking about because so many people's hands are tied uh or at least they feel like they're tied even at the local level where they have to they kind of have to do their job or get the funding to get the funding from the state they're they're pushing papers around and just processing things and they're not really listening to their constituents, just as you described earlier, if you listen to your constituents, you can't get anything done because nobody else wants to rock the boat.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Why don't we, you know, maybe we have another 10 or 15 minutes left and just to kind of wrap it up with how as governor, you would really address this issue, like getting that big money f- finance out of politics. I, I know you have mm-hmm. the the rank choice voting as part of your platform and, and well, ways to decentralize power into, into local right. communities.
1: Right, yeah. well, Well. first of all, I mean, there's certain things I would like to push for on a federal level, like uh, reenacting the Glass-Steagall Act, which is a firewall between Wall Street and the banks, and, and to put back into place uh, in the FCC, the Fairness Doctrine, which forced anyone with a broadcasting license to actually give both sides of the story by law, um, things like that. Um, you know, posse comitatus needs to be put back into place. Um, we have what's called the Smith-Munt Act, which was eviscerated in 2012, mm-hmm. which basically made it illegal for the U.S. government to propagandize against Americans on American soil. Um, and, and basically what this means is that before they eviscerated the Smith-Munt Act, um, uh, and it was it was the, the Patriot Act. That's when they did this. Um it, it, the, the U.S. government could propagandize against people on, on foreign soil and even against Americans on for, foreign soil, but they couldn't do that here in the United States. And then come 2012, now they can do it. And Look, look how our media is. Look at how it's just spun out of control. Right. Our government is spinning tails. And so um, you have to ask the question, why would our government want to remove a protection, a firewall that would keep the government from lying to the people on their own soil? The only reason why they would do that is because they intended on doing it. That's the only reason. So there's one big red flag. So there's that. Now, the other thing is, and this is important, people can do this wherever they are. They don't need permission. They don't need a bill to be passed. They don't need a governor to say, go do it. They can do it because I have actually done this. And that is, how do you measure the job of your elected officials? How do you measure the wellness of your community and your society? And there's this beautiful thing. And I was inspired back in 2009 when I was the vice mayor in Nevada City, the country of bhutan has something called the happiness index every year their citizens go out and they fill out this survey it's like 70 pages long takes hours and they'll ask questions like how fat's your ox how high's your wheat you know things like that right and um uh you know of course we have an american version and we don't have those kind of questions but we do ask questions like do you have access to clean water are you living in a food desert do you uh, have access to higher education or arts do you feel safe in your neighborhood so this is the thing in america and this is what really ticks me off. And this is why I said to you earlier. In order to change, you know, your world around you, you need to change what it is you're measuring. And right now, what we measure without question is the the GDP, gross domestic product. Well, when you look at the GDP, what does it measure? Well, it measures basically how much money is being made. So what makes money? Catastrophe, disease, illness, death, car accidents, a, a home burning down. It doesn't measure wellness. It you know it just like for instance. What does not add to the GDP is is good, healthy forest management. What adds to the GDP is catastrophic fire, where you have to order all the big bombers and sink all these millions and millions of dollars in a matter of days to extinguish a fire. That's that's insane. That's not reflective of our wellness. But the happiness index, the wellness index, it measures all these different categories, right? Health, education, governance, art, family, blah, blah, blah. So what we can actually do is in your own community, because I've done, I did that in 2009, it was controversial uh, to a certain group of people here, they kind of had a fit over it, and I never understood why, and now I know why. Because what we can do is we can actually elect officials, and then we can find, we can find very quickly within every year and narrow it down to the neighborhood how well each community is doing, how well they're being represented. How they're doing around law enforcement, or around you know access to clean, healthy food or water, or, or you know farms, or you know education, and and so we can actually narrow it down, and we can do a scorecard essentially on our elected officials, and so every single year. We do the happiness index. We we can, we can um, look at that information, dial it down to neighborhood by neighborhood, let our elected officials know you're getting a D in this area, a C there, an A there, mm-hmm. and an F there. And if you don't clean up your report card, you're going to be out of here. We're going to recall you, or we're not going to elect you again. Well, we don't have anything like that. Why? Because our elected officials don't want you to measure their performance. So right. I say to people, the other thing that's important about my gubernatorial campaign is we're doing it in such a way that whether I win or not, and if if I do win, I have an incredible, extraordinary team, and we'll do extraordinary things. We will help the Californian people, but we want to actually give them the tools, whether or not I'm elected, to go out there and change their world and, and the betterment of their community. And these are some of the tools. The happiness index is a real easy one, really cheap to do, and and highly, highly effective.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. You reminded me of this of study that came out of Princeton University a few years ago that was. Uh, going around figuring out, you know, what did the polls say versus what Congress did and discovered it was basically Congress never did what the people wanted and always did what the corporations wanted. And they, they basically came out and said, this is an oligarchy. There's nothing democratic about it whatsoever. Uh, And it seems like, like what you're talking about measurement here, like really keeping track, are people happier now than they were last year or the year before Uh, is a way to put the feet to the fire of these representatives and say, you have to actually show results. You can't just continue to feed this big money machine and set up this, this brick wall between the community's needs Mm -hmm. and, you know, the corporation's money-making off the state. Um, In conclusion, here uh, let's—I mean, you can talk about that a little bit if you like. But um, what would you do in your first hundred days? Because in the contract you have the the sort of hundred-day initiative. I don't want to put you You on. Yeah, and I should. In
1: the first hundred days, I would bring an an end to uh, these—the state of emergency for sure. Mm -hmm. That's ridiculous. Uh, The first hundred days, I would ensure people are really concerned about their health. I would distribute vitamin C, D, and zinc tablets to every Californian right? Uh, uh, as well as, um, ivermectin as well, if there's still concerns. So, um, and then the other thing is is that I would also actually declare a state of emergency around the homeless, uh, humanitarian crises. Uh-huh. And that is absolutely, um, inexcusable that it is not being dealt with. How dare we allow grandparents and parents and children and families to be out in the cold on death's door and being exposed to amazingly they're not being exposed to COVID. I haven't seen COVID hit any of the camps. It's kind of unusual. Um, but uh yeah, that's interesting. But how dare we, as the fifth largest economy, accept this? And what's what it is is that, you know, Americans and Californians are really good um at, at crises like that just come up from out of nowhere, right? We we know how to jump on our game and, and deal with something immediately and pivot. But what we're not really good with are the chronic, long lasting crises. And that's Mm -hmm. what the homeless issue is. We just learn how to adapt and turn a blind eye. So so the main thing is ending the state of emergencies around COVID, making sure that we actually have everything readily available for every Californian to boost their immune system and to counter anything uh, COVID related, and then actually deal with the humanitarian crises of the homeless issue. Um, and those are the two big things. And then after that, really, it's about really getting uh, getting together the grassroots, doing a lot of task force with more complicated issues around like water distribution and so on, and uh, farmland and um, and and housing, really with the housing
0: that's another complicated one. Well there is so much more that we could talk about. I think we should probably wrap it up. It's been an hour and a half, but um you know, let's, uh, I'd, I'd encourage all of my listeners certainly to uh, check out the uh, contract with California that Renette has up on her website. Do you want to let people know where they can find that and get this information? Sure. So,
1: and again, the uh, the happiness index is not on that right now. That's going to be the second iteration, but Great. it is forthcoming. So elect Renette. So it's E-L-E-C-T, elect. Renette is R E I n-e-t-t-e electronet.com um if you want to learn more about me in a personal note uh, i've had a, a blog over the years um called the foghorn express.com and don't forget the t-h-e the foghorn express.com so electronet.com just to let you know it's just the tip of the iceberg that website we got a lot more um, that's coming up um and uh but you can find on the landing page the pdf contract with californians that's available and if you want to just know who I'm more of a person and and what I'm about, um, I'm all about the seven generation principle. I'm all about legacy, what we leave behind, and I'm also also about returning the rule of law to this great state. and And I believe in in bodily autonomy. So, um, and you can find more again with that that contract with Californians. And no, it is a living document, so it will continue to um, develop over the next five six months. Um, because I believe I believe in the collective genius, and it will only get better.
0: Absolutely absolutely well thank you so much oh and uh can they find the the interview show chew on this is that going to be on Bitshoot? oh so primarily? if you go to
1: bit okay b-i-t-c-h-u-t-e bit shoot you have to put my name in renette senems chew on this yeah and if you go on to BitChute's, uh and renette senems chew on this um You'll see over the last year and a half, all the interviews I've done. And I've had some really fabulous interviews. Uh, A lot of the big names you see today when they're just kind of first starting and and they needed an outlet. I was one of those people that gave them an outlet to be heard, whether it was Sherry Tenpenny or Christian Northrup or David Martin or or Dr. Peter McCullough. Um, These are the people that I was interviewing and giving them an outlet so we can make informed decisions. And so I pulled back on that. I think there's enough people out there interviewing now. I don't Mm. need to do that. And I'm focusing on the, the governorship.
0: Excellent. Well, I am. Uh, I'm glad to have this conversation with you today and get this information out there to as many people as I can. Really appreciate your work. Um, Thank especially. you. And please
1: donate dollar, three dollars, five dollars. We'll take it. We are grassroots, so that is, you know, it's it's all about the blades of grass adding up. So uh, that is another big piece. Please don't be afraid to donate from anywhere in the states. Actually,
0: so absolutely sounds good. And I and I think that uh, the messaging about empowering communities and really fighting this big money. I mean the big money issue again, like we've talked about, people call it some kind of grand conspiracy. No, it's just corporatism. It's been going on yeah. for a long time and these guys yeah. have just taken way too much power away from our local yeah. communities. That's right. So Yeah, I've uh, seen
1: it, I've seen it firsthand.
0: Yeah. Well, I'm happy to help you get the word out. I hope you, your campaign does great. I'll just uh, take a moment to let people know you've been listening to The Shift. And I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, look up Doug McKenty on Facebook or I'm on Twitter at D McKenty if you want to get in touch with me that way. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Thanks so much, Renette, for coming on the show. And Thanks, uh, again, appreciate your work. And um, I'll keep my fingers crossed about this campaign. Look forward to hearing more.
1: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: You bet. Bye everyone. Hey, take care. Yeah. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. That was my conversation with uh, gubernatorial candidate, Renette Senum. She's running for uh, governor of California. And, uh, I'm just always happy to have third-party candidates on the show. I want to say that first. Um, one of uh, one of the issues that's listed actually in in Renette's, uh, contract for California is ranked choice voting. Um, I guess I see, you know. That the two party system is uh, pretty corrupt. I think you all probably see that yourselves. Uh, And at least opening up the democracy to have more of a third party choice, I mean, that gives us a little bit more options moving forward. So I think uh, ranked choice would do this. Um, So I was happy to have her on to give her some, uh, to give her whatever airtime I can give her, because uh, as she said, uh, the censorship is actually the biggest issue now. Uh, Which is really sad, actually, to see. I mean, we've seen it so clearly in the medical community and the scientific community, uh, but now also clearly in the political arena where these third-party candidates are basically being censored, certainly on the big tech uh, social media sites. And uh, it's starting to interfere with our politics, right? As we all know (laughs) that censorship does. Uh, although I'm surprised at how many people uh, I know these days who have no problem with censorship. So, indeed, that's a big part of the problem. So, anyway, again, just happy to have her on so we could have this conversation. Um, I think the thing that attracts me most to what Renette has to say is really trying to uh, get away from this left-right paradigm, and if you go and read the contract for California, I think you'll find a very unique um, combination, I guess, is the best way to say it. I mean, clearly... I feel like Renette comes from what would be typically a left wing point of view in terms of her uh, concern for the environment, uh, for the sustainability for the environment. And again, uh, within the Contract of California, for California, you can read uh, the policy paper there. Um, But at the same time, she has uh, maintained what are often now considered conservative principles, which is about individual uh, rights, local autonomy, and individual decision making. Uh, boundaries between the individual and the state and this kind of combination uh, it's certainly attractive to me and I hope that she can um, really create a big tent I mean that's what it's all about right politically these days uh, to try to create uh, political messaging that can bring uh, a large bulk of the population uh, into the political arena um, based on this concept basically of decentralizing power right Um, so uh, I uh, Again, I just urge everybody to go check out the contract for California. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes outlining a few uh, of the tenants. She talks about actually uh, utilizing public banking, which I think is huge, separating the state's economy and really then leveraging the state's economy um, for the state. Rather than all of this money getting moved back and forth between state coffers and essentially Wall Street, uh, investing in the in the state economy rather than investing in the Wall Street economy uh, could really, I think, turn things around pretty quickly. Um, and she talks a lot about different methodologies uh, for decentralization of power and empowering local communities to really be involved uh, in making the changes that they need for their specific issues Um, i appreciate that as well Um, she spends a lot of time talking about the sustainability issues uh, how to cultivate healthy soil for carbon sequestration um, and how to really uh, revive the state's economy and a lot of her environmental policies are the same way uh, especially in terms of the fire issue, which we hear in Northern California, although it's been in Southern California as well, I uh, have to deal with. So she goes in, into forest management, um, encouraging uh, the pollinators to come back, the bee issue, which is actually a bigger issue than most people realize, uh, and she gets into uh, education and healthcare. care. So uh, I hope you all think about checking out uh, her policies and her politics. And again, the Contract for California is an evolving document. So uh, it's going to be consistently updated with uh, as Renette goes around the state and, and engages in dialogue with other local communities, and uh, everybody participates in brainstorming solutions for the future. Um, so we'll be looking forward to, to keeping touch with her as she goes on throughout the campaign. And I'll just let you know once again to go to ww.electrenet.com where you can find the contract for California. And if you really like what you're hearing, please think about donating to the campaign. All right, uh, and I'll just let everybody know you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Sign up for the newsletter, subscribe for the full length features of the episodes. Uh, I'm uh, on Facebook, Doug McKenty. Uh, you can look up The Shift with Doug McKenty there as well. It's a little harder to find for some reason. Uh, and uh, though I'm on YouTube, I'm put. I, I'm putting all of my stuff on Odyssey and Rockfin uh, these days because so, some of my stuff just won't fly on YouTube anymore. And then um, and then you can uh, yeah you can check it out there. Oh, next week I've got Mark Crispin Miller coming up. I've been wanting to interview him for a long time, and uh, so I uh, will be looking forward to that conversation. He actually wrote a, an older book that is based on the 2004 election and how he thought it was stolen. So we're going to be able to make connections, I think, between uh, what was going on under George Bush, what happened in the last election. And Mark is an expert on propaganda. So we'll discuss a lot of the propaganda around uh, the election and especially the January 6th thing. So I'm looking forward to that. All right, everybody. Uh, We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot.